Welcome to the Shadow of the Valley, the show that tracks the troubling trends of technology today through contemplative conversations with actors of conscience. I'm your host, Tal Leeds, your guide through the digital darkness we dare not speak. Join me as we plumb the depths and seek the roots of post-human dilemmas. Together we'll explore key concepts, seek clear insight, and cut through the distractions to find solutions to some of our toughest challenges. This week's episode features EFF Austin President Kevin Welch. The Electronic Frontier Foundation, or EFF, is concerned with emerging frontiers where technology meets society. Our conversation covers net neutrality, digital rights management, digital privacy, cyborg rights, and much more. So what they can do is they can write software that basically says, you can only use our product in a way we approve of. Yeah. And if you don't like that and you're like, oh, well, then I'm just going to go in here and change the code and disable this because it's my product. I can change anything I want on it, right? They right. go, uh-uh-uh, you can't change the code. Together, we'll learn why net neutrality is so critical to free speech on the web, why farmers are downloading bootleg Ukrainian software, and why you might be a cyborg without even realizing it. It's time to step into the dark. So let's begin. So, before we get started, I have a bit of sad news to report. While I was editing this episode, internet pioneer and EFF founder John Perry Barlow passed away. John had come up in the original conversation I had with Kevin as he was retelling the history of EFF's founding. Unfortunately, it ran long and I had to cut it for time, but I plan to release the unedited version for our conversation as well so that you can hear it. For now, I want you to read a bit from the obituary posted by Cindy Kahn to EFF.org. She writes, Barlow is sometimes held up as a straw man for a kind of naive techno-utopianism that believed that the internet could solve all of humanity's problems without causing any more. As someone who spent the last 27 years working with him at EFF, I can say that nothing could be further from the truth. Barlow knew that new technology could create and empower evil as much as it could create and empower good. He made a conscious decision to focus on the latter. Quote, I knew it's also true that a good way to invent the future is to predict it. So I predicted utopia, hoping to give liberty a running start before the laws of Moore and Metcalf delivered up what Ed Snowden now correctly calls turnkey totalitarianism, unquote. Barlow's lasting legacy is that he devoted his life to making the internet into, quote, a world that all may enter without privilege or prejudice accorded by race, economic power, military force, or station of birth, a world where anyone, anywhere, may express his or her beliefs, no matter how singular, without fear of being coerced into silence or conformity. In appreciation of John and all the work he's done, I'm dedicating this episode to him. So thanks, John, for leaving us with a vision of the way things ought to be on the internet and a fine organization dedicated to making it so. Your foresight and leadership will be sorely missed.
I just finished a book by Adam Greenfield called Radical Technologies. In it, he takes a critical look at many of the technologies that are either here already or on the horizon and examines the way that they could change the world. At the center of his critique is the classic question of qui bono, who benefits? For example, in his chapter on trends in machine learning, Greenfield warns, quote, In the world we're building, we may well contend with patterns of advantage we cannot discern, allocations of resource that make no obvious sense, arranged in ways and for reasons we'll never understand, to advance ends we can only dimly perceive. Every day, technological innovations are reorienting our relationship to ordinary things. Just think about your smartphone. How have the apps changed the way you travel, get food, make money, split a check, or even go out on a date? Think about the home assistants like Google Home or Amazon's Alexa. Internet-enabled thermostats that allow you to adjust your home air conditioner from anywhere with an app. Fitbits that can track your fitness habits down to the last step. The list goes on and on with no end in sight. 3D printing, artificial intelligence, automation, blockchain technology, digital currencies, all of these, they carry tremendous potentials and tremendous dangers. And that's just looking at the digital end of the technological spectrum. With advances like CRISPR, a gene editor that is significantly easier to, and cheaper to use, biogenetics is on the verge of some major technological leaps. Gene therapies, nanobots, cybernetic limbs, they're all advancing in ways that will fundamentally change the way we think about healthcare and even human reproduction. With all these new leaps come a load of human dilemmas we've never considered before. For instance, if I have a prosthetic leg that's attached to my body and it works on proprietary software, then who actually owns the limb? Is it me? or the people who own the software that makes it work? Are you allowed to fix it on your own if it breaks? What about all the ways that Amazon is gonna use that data to adjust its pricing according to your patterns of use? Is that okay? What will happen to millions of workers who may lose their jobs due to automation? What about the white collar workers that are gonna lose their jobs too? These are just some of the problems that we can conceive of now. And as we ought to know by now, each technology will come with its own set of dilemmas that no one can conceive of yet. For all the power and convenience these tools offer or promise us, there is a motherload of dangers, risks, and circumstances that could fundamentally change what it means to be human, to be free, to be vital, to think for yourself and live in a just society. Make no mistake, these emerging technologies will radically change the very nature and capacities of governmental power. And then what? How will we choose to live? How will we retain our humanity? Will we have to redefine it, enhance it, expand it? Or is it just time to run into your apocalypse bunker and hope it all just ends? If we just roll our eyes and wait for someone to take care of it all, it'll default to the titans of Silicon Valley, who will, in turn, make decisions that are most favorable to them, their stockholders, their bottom line, no matter the cost to you or society as a whole. If we want the future to retain its humanity, now is the time to take a long, 
hard, critical look at the sorts of things we're being sold and the social consequences they carry with them before it's too late. In this episode, our guest is Kevin Welch. Kevin is the president of EFF Austin, the Austin offshoot of the Electronic Frontier Foundation. EFF is an independent, nonprofit civil liberties organization concerned with the emerging frontiers where technology meets society. They are concerned with topics such as net neutrality, digital rights management, digital privacy, cyborg rights, and much more. He's also a full-stack developer slash programmer and a musician. Kevin, welcome. Well, it's, uh, thank you for having me, Tal. It's a pleasure to be here. Glad to have you today. Thanks for, for your time. Oh, my pleasure. All right. So... Um, so you're the president of the EFF in Austin. Yes, that is correct. And um, for those of us who are listening who don't know uh, what the EFF is, could you give us a bit of an introduction? All right. And um, do you want the uh, the brief explanation or the much longer rambling explanation? Because <laughs> well, there are two versions. Yeah, it's it's good to it's good to pay, to know. Um, Let's start with the brief one, and then uh, maybe we can expand from there. All right. Well, uh, the EFF is the Electronic Frontier Foundation, a nice, very sci-fi-sounding name. So, you know, you know it's got to be cool. But um, the EFF is based out of San Francisco, um, and they've been around since about 1990, 91, somewhere in there. So they're about, oh, going on 23. Seven twenty-eight years now. Um, I'm the president of EFF Austin. Um, so basically, um, the EFF there are there are multiple sort of affinity groups around the United States and even internationally. There's mm. one in India, and I believe there may be some in other places who are basically aligned with the EFF and its its missions and its ideas. And um, the Austin. Chapter the EFF doesn't really have chapters. We're more independent organizations who consult with the EFF in what's known as the EFA or the Electronic Frontier Alliance. Mm-hmm. Um, EFF Austin is the oldest member of the alliance. We um, we've been around a long time, and like the EFF, um, EFF Austin, we are very much concerned with the same things they are. And you now the question is well. What does the Electronic Frontier Foundation do? Yes. The, the long and the short of it is that uh, a group of very prescient, smart lawyers around uh, the beginning of the 90s realized that our laws were not keeping up with our technology. Uh-huh. That basically the protections that we are guaranteed by our Constitution um, were not being preserved in new emerging uh, technologies and technological spaces, specifically the burgeoning internet, which at the time was not the internet as we know it today. It was more like Usenet, for instance, um, or or, um, or BBSs, bulletin board systems. So uh-huh. 
um, there were a number of legal incidents involving the FBI and other parties where people's rights um, were essentially infringed upon, um, but there wasn't protection for them because the way the laws were written were written for older technologies. Uh -huh. So their, their right against, under the Fourth Amendment, say, against unreasonable search and seizure was not being protected because the way laws were written defining what was reasonable or unreasonable uh, standards for search and seizure uh, had not been written with these new technologies in mind. So um, basically, um, the EFF came into being um, via the collaboration of uh, lawyers, uh, technology lawyers, uh, technologists, futurists, and just prescient people with a lot of money uh -huh. who realized that this was going to become an increasing problem and there needed to be an organization on people's side protecting them as our world's rate of technological change just continued to accelerate faster and faster okay. and faster. Right. So basically, in summary, um, it's based around the need to translate civil liberties laws into the digital age. That would be correct, and that was the short version, as I yeah. said. <laughs> yeah, no, great. Okay, excellent. Uh, and obviously, yeah, I mean, there's a lot involved there. It's, there's, there's so many different aspects and, and a lot of different angles on it that, that the average layperson probably doesn't think about, which I'm sure makes it a little trickier to explain what EFF does. But um, from my understanding of it, at least, uh, that's a lot of what you guys do. You kind of have like a, this brain trust of, Lawyer, you know, legal legal minds and uh, tech minds, and come together and uh, uh, find this the space in between where where uh, the issues of, of society and technology can can uh, can meet. Exactly, and you know, it it doesn't always necessarily have to be about people's rights being infringed necessarily. It it really just is about exploring that space of where new technologies are resulting in new ways that human beings interact with each other, engage mm -hmm. with each other, come together, and ultimately law is about making it so that human beings can live together and get along together right. in a harmonious, purposeful um, way that allows yeah. for forward progress, whatever that means to sure, you. Sure, yeah. And so technology... Rapidly changing technology can disrupt the equilibrium of current laws. Right. And it's important to have people who are looking at those changes, who are experts in the subject area, and can make recommendations about how we preserve the rule of law and protect people's rights as technology changes our right. society. Right. So in a sense, the work you do is not um, terribly far off from, say, like ACLU? It's actually very similar. Uh -huh. um, they, their work is not exactly the same as ours because they're right. going to be much more focused on, on people's rights being violated under our current framework. Because right. Because just because we have a framework of laws that guarantees protections, this does not mean that certain bad actors are not constantly trying to get away with murder under the current framework and violate guaranteed rights under our Constitution right, yeah. of non-privileged, powerful interest groups. Um, so the ACLU right. is going to be much more concerned with, say, like um, 
disenfranchising uh, African American voting rights in the South, although that that, spe- that specific sure, example yeah. is really the Southern Poverty Law Center's domain. Right. But that would be something the ACLU would care about, or the ACLU would care about that. Um, you know, protesters are not being allowed to peacefully protest a controversial topic somewhere right. in a public guaranteed free speech space. Right. But the, so those are like violations of our rights under our existing framework. EFF is much more concerned about, hey, somebody just invented this newfangled technology and the way the laws are currently written, somebody can do something that we all kind of agree really violates the spirit of the laws around our rights, but they're technically not violating the letter of the law. Right. Right. So it's a little bit of a future-oriented mm-hmm. uh, ACLU. It's a, it's a little more creative and, and visionary in that way. I mean, there's definitely an overlap with futurist speculation. We've definitely right. had futurists on our board. We've had them speak at our events because it very much... A lot of it is about trying to be proactive with technology and actually speculating, hey, here's this new technology. What could go wrong? Right. And let's be proactive in protecting against it. Well, so um, let's, uh, to, to kind of illustrate this, let's go into a couple of the things we mentioned in, the, um, in, in your bio. Um, because th- these are some uh, phrases that I'm sure people have heard or at least kind of piece together a little bit of what it is. But... Maybe if we can have you explain it and, and explain how it ties to uh, EFF's mission, that would be uh, illustrative for uh, our listeners. I'd be happy to try. <laughs> okay, so, um, well, net neutrality we've heard a lot about recently, so why don't we start there? Um, it's such a huge topic. Where would you like me to begin? Uh, what is, a more what specific is, question. Of maybe. course, yeah. Um, what, is the, what is the basic um, concern that EFF has with regards to um, net neutrality. So I, I guess, like, let's start with what is it and then what is uh, EFF's concern. Okay. Net neutrality is a term that was coined by law professor Tim Wu around 2002, 2003, somewhere in that date range. I believe he's a professor of law at Columbia. But um, So basically, net neutrality is a way of sort of formalizing as a legal axiom or framework, it's basically, it is an observation about a lot of the basic architectural rules behind how the internet was designed and built. It's a principle that basically says that these long-standing conventions about how the internet was designed and works are good, that they foster freedom of opinion and freedom of information in online spaces, that they protect our rights in the digital world. So it's basically the idea, I mean, it's, it's related to free speech, but specifically it is the idea that no individual, no matter who they are, how powerful they are, or how much money they have, no individual's speech is inherently worth more than any other individual okay. speech. It's basically it's our First Amendment in action, basically uh-huh. um, you know, online, and 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 that civil liberty that we all all believe in. I hope. Um, but to give a very simplified explanation, the basic way the internet works is that it functions on a technology called packet switching. But basically, this is a fancy way of saying that all the computers on the internet send 
little blobs of data. And there's a complicated, essentially glorified telephone network that figures out where these blobs came from and where they need to go. Mm -hmm. And the way the protocols that govern the packets work, um, all that matters in packet switching is where a packet came from and where it wants to go. And the protocols just figure out how on this crazy interconnected network, how to get it where it wants to go. Mm -hmm. um, specifically, the protocols do not care what information or data is actually in said packet of information. Um, so that packet could be a piece of an email. It could be a piece of a picture, a piece of a video, a piece of a website. The technology does not care what the data in that packet represents or decodes to. Yeah. All it, it, they're all equal as far as it's concerned. All it knows is I have all these blobs of data that need to get to their destination and potentially then go back to where they came from. And it just figures out the most efficient way of getting them all where they need to go. Mm -hmm. It does not care what the actual content is. Mm -hmm. And that, in an essence, is net neutrality. Because if, if you don't care about what actual information is in the packets, then you're not privileging any party's information. Uh -huh. My little blog's packets are just as important as Facebook's packets. Uh -huh. Now, of course, there are, there are things that can result in Facebook's packets getting to me faster. But that, that also... Is, but that, that should not be mistaken for that their packets are privileged, per se. It would uh -huh. be more accurate to say that their website has to send your computer a lot more information to function than my little simple blog does. Yeah. So a lot of that stuff about delivering their packets quickly is really just them finding ways to deliver much more data that their website needs to me faster. But it's not like their individual packets are privileged over my blog's packets as far as the overall infrastructure of the internet is concerned. So it's a, it's a matter of speed, right? There's yeah. there, a lot of people use the term uh, uh, fast lanes. Yes, that, that is at the heart of the current debate. Um, because, to, to explain it very shortly, so, you know, the, the internet as it's currently designed, it's an interesting technology because it is both a non-hierarchical and a hierarchical technology. It's not hierarchical in things like net neutrality. Um, another place, not to get technical, but just to give an example where it is, an example of non-hierarchical technology as far as the internet is like peer-to-peer -peer networking. Sure. Um, but That's like what Napster used to be. And yeah, what BitTorrent is, BitTorrent, okay. But places where the internet is very hierarchical in its design are, you know, for instance, the domain name system of figuring out how, what names of websites mean which computers. That's a hierarchical technology. Um, but the main place it manifests in the net neutrality debate is in internet service providers, ISPs, telecoms. Basically, so ISPs can sort of, if you think of the internet as a bunch of independent networked computer networks, ISPs are the points where those networks are joined together. Like, okay. like there might be, for instance, you might have a whole bunch of 
computers in a particular city. And then there's a whole bunch of computers in another city. Mm-hmm. And those computers want to be able to communicate with each other. The ISP essentially functions as a bunch of central computers slash servers that facilitate that talking, basically. Okay. That they receive packets from one set of computers and then go, okay, they, they, these packets need to go to this other set of computers over here. They're, they're the joining point in the yeah. network. There's a term that you may have heard in some of the debate called uh, peering, network peering. That's basically about where one ISP's network of computers and servers meets and talks to another ISP's network of wires and nodes and computers and servers. So, so basically... So say like Time Warner, or I guess it's Spectrum now, right? Yes. The Spectrum's network talking to uh, the, I don't know, Verizon's network, or uh, yes. Comcast's network. Right, they own different wires, different servers. Uh-huh. And, and the telecoms are, are very naturally monopolistic, actually, when it comes to their wires. They don't, they don't, there is, the internet is not, the wires are not public. Like, different ISPs own different ones of the wires. Like, actually, when, when Google Fiber has wanted to be an ISP in various cities, the main cost associated with this has been that they can't just say, we're going to be an ISP on the existing telephone lines and offer you fast internet service because the existing telephone lines are owned by other ISPs. And they're right. like, well, you're a competitor. We don't want you using our wires and taking our business. So they've had to build their own wires. Um, but yeah, but but, but... but also, in doing so, they are utilizing public utilities I mean, in, in order to, say, run the cables underground or mm-hmm. things like that. They, they are making use of public utilities, public easements. They're getting public work permits. And actually, a lot of the money for their networks actually came from public funds that the taxpayers paid ISPs to build these networks. Right. Which um, they... Um, so it's not like the private sector just kind of... Uh, took this out of thin air and, and just said, oh, well, here's, here's our glorious internet, make use of it and pay us. Like, it's, it's more like um, they kind of piggybacked on, on, on the government at different stages, and uh, I guess there's an argument uh, could be made that they couldn't have done it have, having not uh, had the government uh, support in, in, all those different, in all those different areas. Oh, I would agree. I'd say it's quite arguable that uh, no, without... Most major private innovations are usually not possible without favorable uh, public investment mm-hmm. and public regulations. Yeah. So, um, so, yeah, I would agree with that. And I mean... I mean, because even like the, the ARPANET was... The, was mm-hmm. uh, did I say that right? Yes, ARPANET. Yeah, uh, the original uh, internet was was a government program. Yes, it was. It was ulti- military program. Yeah, it was a military program ultimately to uh, figure out ways to survive the first strike in a nuclear war. Right. Yeah. Which is actually why the internet is so decentralized. Uh-huh. They didn't want there to be one spot you could attack and take out the internet. Right. Right. Um, but yeah, but I mean, but to get back to net neutrality and specifically how the ISPs relate into it. So, so basically, the way the internet works in practice, most even though they're not 
quote unquote strictly necessary as far as the technology and protocols are concerned, the, for efficiency's sake and cost savings and whatnot, the, the internet functionally works where ISPs act as gatekeepers who route most of the data of the internet where it needs to go. Okay. Now, this actually gives the ISPs a great deal of power because all the data is flowing through them. And you know, you're, you're basically dependent on their largesse as far as your data getting where you would like it to go or the data you request coming to you. Mm -hmm. And basically what net neutrality s says is that the ISPs, despite their privileged position, it is none of their business what is actually in the packets they are transporting. Mm -hmm. They, you know, they, they only care about source and destination, and they shouldn't care who you are. They should not care what is in the packet. Of course, and, and this has been sort of, the, even before Tim would coin net neutrality, in the early days of the Internet, this was basically the unofficial convention that just, yeah, send the packets where they need to go. But as the internet has commercialized um, businessmen and marketers and, um, and various other people who are interested in the bottom line have basically figured out that there is a great deal of money to be made if you choose to uh, discriminate based on what a packet is, what data is in it, who it came mm -hmm. from. Specifically, the internet fast lanes, as they are called. Um, basically, the idea behind an internet fast lane is that a particular company or individual could basically pay their ISP and say, um, hey, I want to guarantee that my packets are delivered quickly and efficiently to anyone who requests them. In fact, I would like mine to be delivered before anyone else's. I would like you to prioritize my packets. And of course, um, any packet that is prioritized over all other packets will naturally be processed very quickly. Mm -hmm. So, um, so basically, um, so basically, a fast lane is basically saying that certain people's packets are more important than other people's, and specifically, it it privileges those who have the money to pay. So, it. It is, it is actually a very closely related issue to uh, the Citizens United Supreme Court decision and money in politics. It's, it's the same thing in a lot of ways, where it's basically, it's saying that those who have financial resources, those opinions, their opinions, matter more because they can pay more. And I mean... The whole money is speech. Money argument. is speech, basically. I mean... Internet fast lanes is money is speech on the internet, basically. Because a big company like Facebook, they're, they're rolling the money. And if they want to pay to ensure that their packets get to their consumers quickly, they can afford that. Mm -hmm. but, um, but if I'm just some little blog, um, the thing is, the price for what you have to pay for a fast lane will be set by the richest actor's ability to pay. So obviously, Facebook can pay a lot more uh, than just some random blog. Right, so it'll so, be completely out of reach for the average person because they can't quite compete with a multi-billion dollar corporation. Exactly. And 
other ways that this well, fast lanes are one way that the problem manifests, but the other way you may have heard about is essentially what have been called sort of internet website packages, sort of similar to cable TV packages, mm -hmm. where at, in the current model, if I want to go to a particular website, um, it's treated the same as if I want to go to any other website. Right. But under net neutrality, not only with fast lanes can certain websites be privileged and be served to the, uh, their users more quickly, but ISPs can actually say, well, I actually uh, don't want to serve you that website quickly. I want to do what's called throttling that website, where I basically right. say, yeah, I'll get around to your packets uh, eventually. Right, so like say... Uh... You know, Google Fiber doesn't like uh, doesn't like you using your uh, Netflix account on their uh, on their network. So uh, to encourage you to buy their package or buy their mm -hmm. movie streaming service, uh, they will. Um, I guess it would be YouTube Red, right? They want you to use YouTube right, Red they want instead. You to use YouTube Red. So they will throttle you if you use uh, Netflix, and you'll just have to wait longer for your stuff. Potentially so long that you give up in frustration because for something like video streaming, the service is completely unusable. Right. Yes, I mean, that, that is it in a nutshell. That it allows ISPs who, we must remember, they're often large conglomerates who own many different services. And so it essentially allows an ISP to be monopolistic and stifle competition. They can basically say... I want you to use this one particular video streaming service because I own it. Mm -hmm. I want you to use this one music streaming service yeah. because I own it. But it gets even more insidious than that, and this is really where it starts to brush up against free speech in a more traditional sense. Because let's say your ISP also owns uh, a newspaper with a certain political view. Right. And let's say you want to read blogs or newspapers with a different political view. Right. Well, your ISP can basically say, I don't like those packets. I don't want you going to that website. So we see how by not treating all packets equally, it really does start to become a free speech issue. This thing is sold by the ISPs as Capitalism 101, that the consumer should be able to pay for privileged treatment, which on its surface, I mean, all right, if you accept the basic tenets of capitalism and you're like, oh, well, I should be able to pay for what I want as the consumer. Well, it's not just an argument about capitalism. It really is about infringing on your First Amendment rights because Sure, you, you as the consumer may be able to pay for fast lanes and additional privileges assuming you have that much money, but you know, you're, you're competing against other people who are now allowed to do the same thing, and maybe they don't want you reading that thing or using that service. So it's being sold to people under the guise of giving them more consumer choice and freedom to spend their money how they want. But in the end, no person can compete against a, a giant conglomerate. And in the end, it's going to take away your freedom. It's not going to give you more freedom. Mm -hmm. Even just thinking of it from a purely capitalistic perspective. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm glad we spent some time on that one because that's a, um, 
the big hot topic right now because uh, the FCC just days ago um, lifted the restrictions uh, that uh, established net neutrality as the official stance sent back in the Obama era. Mm -hmm. um, and now it is uh, sort of denutralizing uh, the net, uh, I suppose you could say. Yes, and I, uh, brief side note, I think it's important to say that another thing you hear is a lot of people say all these fears about what will happen without net neutrality are purely hypothetical, and this is just absolutely not the case. Even with net neutrality in place, there have been numerous legal cases where ISPs have been repeatedly caught violating net neutrality. The difference with net neutrality in place is there is actually a mechanism for victims to seek restitution. Without net neutrality, there is no restitution. Uh-huh. And just to be clear, though, that whatever FCC Chairman Ajit Pai may say about these fears are hypothetical, well, like many things Ajit Pai has said, he is just completely wrong about this. <laughs> this is not hypothetical. Okay. Um, so what, uh, before we move on to, uh, to other topics, let's uh, talk about what EFF Austin is doing uh, with regards to net neutrality, is there any kind of campaign right now that they're doing or any kind of um, action that they're taking uh, to, uh, to change, change the, the current situation? Is there any, anything in, underway? Um, there, we're in the early stages of figuring out how we are going to respond and react. Obviously, we are a smaller organization and less equipped than the EFF themselves. Um, and one thing I would say right away to anyone who cares is uh, give the EFF, not us, I mean, uh, give the EFF uh, money. Um, we, of course, would love your money, too. <laughs> but right. if you have a limited budget, always give them money before you give us money. Okay. Because they, they're, just, they're a much bigger organization, and they have much more people on staff. We're all volunteers. They actually have paid people on staff. Okay. And they are much more capable of actually putting your money towards concrete action than we are. Yeah. That being said, um, and, and you should check, they, they definitely are in the early stages of fighting back against this, and you should definitely go to their website and see how you can get involved. Mm -hmm. um, what are we doing? Um, we are tentatively thinking about trying to actually reach out to Google Fiber here in Austin, actually, because a uh, one of our friends uh, at EFF Austin, um, a woman named Ann Boyson, who's the director of an interesting group here in town, uh, the Central Texas chapter of the World Futures Society. Mm -hmm. Ann is a professional futurist by trade. Yeah, we, we interviewed her in uh, one of the earlier interviews. Um, but Ann um, is friends with via that their uh, their kids share some activities. I can't remember if it's they go to school together or, or what it is exactly, but um, she is friends with um, Mark Strama. Mark Strama, as I'm sure many of your listeners know, used to be a politician who I forget which district he represented, but he was a Democratic politician here in, in the Austin area. Okay. Um, he kind of semi-famously stepped down from his role as a politician to become the head of the Google Fiber Project here in Austin. Ah, uh, okay. So, and personally knows uh, Mark, and we are actually planning to reach out to him, and we are sort of going to try to look into potentially putting together with Google here in Austin and EFF Austin, you know, 
We also, there's a very good chance we're going to have a, a lawyer out from the EFF. So um, I imagine that the thing that lawyer is most likely to want to talk about is net neutrality. And so we will probably make a uh, pretty big space for people to listen to that and find out how they can get involved and help the cause. Great. All right, so so we talked about, uh, all right, so that's that's that covers net neutrality. Um, but you also we also have uh, some other curious things that I was hoping you could um, turn a little bit of light on uh, just to kind of explain the sort of, just how expansive EFF's mission really is and, and what kinds of uh, interesting uh, concerns and thoughts uh, you guys are addressing through your work. Um, so um, digital rights management. Mm. That's that's something that um, people maybe haven't heard of or aren't really familiar with the issue is there. And then the other is cyborg rights. Now, <laughs> yeah. that one people are probably even more puzzled about since I'm sure they look around and they're like, well, where, where are there cyborgs that are mm. demanding rights and so on and so forth? And um, mm -hmm. maybe you can uh, address a little bit of that and how it kind of fits into that forward thinking uh, vision that, uh, or mission statement of, of EFF that we were talking about. Sure, I'd love to touch on both of them for a minute here. Um, so, digital rights management, also known as DRM. It's basically copyright protection. Um, you'll note digital rights management, who has the rights over this digital data. Um, you see this pop up in a number of spaces, like um, if you've ever seen a DVD warning you do not copy this, if you have ever had to deal with a game, a video game, that has to, you always have to have an internet connection to play it, or it will refuse to play because it doesn't know if this is an authorized version of the game. Um, the, the, these are all examples of spaces where digital rights management is being used. But it's basically, it is an attempt by software developers to say, I only want you to use this piece of software in the ways I approve of, in, in a very general sense. Okay. Um, and, and, and so how does this become a civil liberties issue? Well, I mean, I guess the most stark example that I think gets a lot of people to realize the, the danger of DRM is, um, is probably the space, actually, of, like, um, of appliances, actually. Okay. Um, I guess smart appliance. Yes. If you try to argue against digital rights management from a, like, you know, oh, it prevents me from, like, copying this DVD, you, you get pushback from people who are like, well, artists have to make a living, you know, sure. that, that's reasonable. I mean, so traditionally when you have bought a product, traditionally you, once you buy that product, you own it. Right. And the person who created the product no longer has a right to say what you do with it. Right. You literally could, the instant you buy it, you know, you could literally set it on fire. That is your <laughs> right. right as the owner. Sure. So the right of the person who made it to tell you how to use it ends as soon as it's no longer theirs. Right. Problem is that now so many of the objects we buy are not purely physical objects. They contain digital data. They contain computers in them to make them smart objects, as it were, to know how right. to more intelligently do things. You see mm -hmm. this everywhere. 
I mean, cars are essentially computers on wheels these days. Especially uh, like Tesla. Especially Tesla or, yeah. or cars approaching driverless cars. But right. all modern cars, there's a computer controlling a dizzying array of things in them, even if you're still driving them. Right. So they're essentially, they've been called computers on wheels. And you see this uh, with, with modern smart fridges and dishwashers and you see this with smart televisions and um, even in places you wouldn't expect and where one of the most stark examples I can give of the problem I'm about to address is uh, even in things like tractors, you know, or like for farmers. Um, but basically what is happening is that digital rights management is basically resulting in the, the creators of these products are basically saying, yeah, you may own the product, but I still own the software because a lot of the agreements for the software in these products basically say that you're not actually buying the software, you're buying a license to use the software, but they technically still own the software and the code and have the rights to change or modify the code. So what they can do is they can write software that basically says you can only use our product in a way we approve of. Yeah. And if you don't like that and you're like, oh, well, then I'm just going to go in here and change the code and disable this because it's my product. I can change anything I want on it, right? They right. go, uh-uh-uh, you can't change the code because I'm only licensing the code to you. You do not have a right to change the code. Right. And what this can result in is like a, a computer printer that will only print if you used approved printer cartridges. Um, or a dish, uh, I mean, to be really extreme, but this is certainly possible, you could have a smart dishwasher that would only use approved dishes. Or a toaster. Or dish soap, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Or a toaster that only will uh, cook approved toast. Uh -huh. Like, that's how ridiculous it could get. Okay. There, and to once again take it out of the realm of the hypothetical, there are actually farmers who are having to download Ukrainian bootleg hacks of tractor <laughs> software uh -huh. because they can't repair their own tractors because the software is basically set up where if something on the tractor breaks, the, the, the farmer can't just repair it themselves. They have to take it in to the approved manufacturer. Right. And, and if you're a farmer, you live out in the middle of nowhere. Well, it's more than that because we run into this with cars too where like, oh, certain things on modern cars, it, you know, there's a great tradition of like just people repairing their own cars in this country. Right, yeah, pop the hood and right. just fix it yourself. But modern, modern cars, because of all the crazy software in them, there's a lot of things you can't replace or fix yourself anymore. And even more, that a third-party repair shop can't fix. Only uh -huh. the people who made the car can fix it because of the software. So you'd have to take it to the dealer. It's basically resulting in monopolies on repair. It's resulting in massively higher prices for consumers and lack of consumer choice. It's also putting mom-and-pop repair shops out of business, which is destroying jobs and damaging the economy. Okay, and um, cyborg rights. Yes. Um, okay, probably a lot of your listeners are even going, uh, cyborgs, isn't that still science fiction? Right, yeah. I mean, it depends on your definition of a cyborg. Exactly, yeah. So so what is? So maybe we should define that. What is, what is a cyborg that... Would have rights. Um, what is a cyborg? Loosely, a cyborg is any situation where the line between the human body 
and a technological tool that the human body uses has become blurred. Mm -hmm. Because certain people are very broad with their definition of cyborg. Like mm -hmm. Some philosophers would even argue that if you pick up a hammer and are using that hammer to hammer in nails, that technically at that moment you are a cyborg because you have taken a non-biological object and integrated it into your biological body and have used it to change or extend your biological capabilities in some way. Okay. Okay, so there's there's a loose there's a loose definition. It's loose not definition. it's not the like I have implants in my brain that, you know, hook me up to a computer. Yes, it doesn't have to be the cyberpunk or sci-fi envisioning uh -huh. of a half human half robot. Okay. Um now, as I said, some people would argue that, frankly, that's being, playing language games and being a little facetious to say, oh, I am holding a hammer, I'm a cyborg. Uh -huh. But to take it into the realm of where I think it's a little less controversial that we are talking about a cyborg, but I think it, people often don't realize that we are dealing with a cyborg in these cases, is let's take the example of someone with a prosthetic limb. Okay. So, so prosthesis, prosthesis or... Um, artificial uh, organs. Uh, yes, or, or a, a pacemaker is actually pacemaker. an excellent okay. example. Anyone with a pacemaker can, without a uh, without being incorrect or lying, anyone with a pacemaker can correctly state, "I am a cyborg." Okay, so that's where it is now. But of course, it's also kind of concerned for the future of, yes. of those more kind of science fictiony right. uh, possibilities, which are increasingly. Possible. Uh, possible. Yes, mm -hmm. like to once again give listeners something uh, interesting to learn. Uh, you should Google the TED Talk of a man named Neil Harbison. Uh -huh. Neil Harbison made headlines because to get into some of these more future-facing things, um, so like pacemakers and prosthetic limbs, these technically are examples of people becoming cyborgs, but... They're relatively non-controversial because they're for what most of us view as medically necessary reasons. Sure. Neil Harbison made headlines for being one of the first human beings who made himself a cyborg purely for cosmetic reasons or aesthetic mm -hmm. reasons or his own desire for experimentation, pleasure, interest, whatever. He did it because he wanted to. Mm -hmm. um, specifically, Neil has an mm -hmm. antenna embedded in his skull uh -huh. that he cannot remove. It is surgically embedded in his skull. So Neil is colorblind. Yeah. So Neil can point this antenna at various colors. Uh -huh. And what the antenna will do is convert that color into a, uh, a sound into a frequency, sound. Okay. into a note that will resonate actually in Neil's skull. Uh -huh. So he can hear color. Interesting. So he knows something is red even though he's colorblind. He aims his antenna at it, and he hears red. Huh. Okay. Um, or an, another example is there's another famous cyborg named Moon Ribas, who she has a chip embedded in her that basically makes it where any time... The chip is connected to the Internet. At any time anywhere on Earth, there is an earthquake. She feels a small vibration <laughs> in the chip in her arm. Wow. <laughs> so she basically yeah. has a sixth sense about knowing earthquakes are happening. <laughs> Literally. Literally. Uh, yeah. So, wow. Okay. So these are so these are some interesting possibilities. And they're not science fiction. These are two real life individuals who okay. exist right now. Okay. So. So with with um, 
So with cyborgs, we're talking about things that people are doing right now. Yes. And uh, and there's there's no law there. There's no very um, little. Although a uh, lot of the law says that what these people are doing is illegal. Uh-huh. Uh, Neil actually had to find a doctor who would uh, perform the procedure for him because uh-huh. most most doctors viewed it as violating uh, their Hippocratic oath of an unnecessary surgical procedure. Sure. And frankly, with the slight implication that the subject might be mentally unbalanced and uh-huh. not in his right mind to want such a thing. Uh-huh. Um, but one of the foremost current sort of cyborg philosophers theorists living today is a man named Rich McKinnon. And he has, in conversation with me, basically said that what a lot of people don't realize is that a substantial fraction of the human population are what he terms cyborgs in waiting. They are people who, they want to be cyborgs. They identify with these enhancements. Mm -hmm. And they're really only waiting on the technology. And how does this ultimately get into EFF's mission regarding laws and rights? Well, when you're talking about putting digital devices into human bodies, it it's actually brushes up against the DRM that we were talking about earlier. You have an electronic device that is running code embedded in somebody's body. That electronic device is running code that potentially was written by a major corporation. And so you suddenly have the interesting question of, who actually owns that cyborg's body? Because traditionally, law has our modern law really emphasizes autonomy of the human body, and and almost all modern rights in a lot of yeah. ways really go back to autonomy over one's own body. Uh-huh. Like yeah. like for instance, you know, habeas corpus literally means to have the body. Right. So when you're dealing with cyborgs you've got these sort of things butting up against each other where somebody may own a copyright on Uh the code running in your body. So so who owns you? You or the corporation? (laughs) Right. Okay, so it becomes very blurry because by definition a cyborg is blurring that line between self and, and tool. Yes, and uh, it's blurring that line between ownership. Yeah. I mean, that, that actually is fundamentally, philosophically, what gets to the core of what a cyborg is. So that's a good little overview of what um, EFF is, is interested in. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's much more, but that kind of gives us a good glimpse into it. Uh, we, yes, there's much more, but these are a nice sampling of topics. Great. We've talked about a lot of different... Uh, Technologies, mm-hmm. um, and um, quite a few of uh, quite a few concerns. Uh, I was wondering if you could maybe pick one out of um, the many that you've covered, or maybe one that we haven't covered yet um, that has you concerned. Um, an area that we see burgeoning right now is the so-called. AR, or augmented reality space. And this overlaps somewhat with VR or virtual reality. The main distinction being that virtual reality completely replaces existing reality with a simulated one, and augmented reality just puts some unreal things on top of reality. Yeah, layers on top of it. Right. 
to give a very to give an example that many consumers this holiday season may be familiar with, there was a big buzz made around a new Disney licensed Star Wars game um, that came out called Jedi Challenges. Uh huh. And this comes. It's like a two hundred dollar game that comes with a VR AR headset manufactured by Lenovo. Um, and the game got a lot of buzz because basically the whole idea behind it is that it is an augmented reality game where, sure, you're, you can still see the world around you in your living room, but you have this headset on, and it is showing you all these things projected in real space, like Star Wars characters and things that you can interact with, and you have your controller is shaped like a lightsaber, and so you can like have fake lightsaber fights that seem real to you because... You know, you've got this virtual thing being projected life-size in front of you of somebody swinging a lightsaber at you. Okay. So that, that's probably the example that a lot of consumers are most familiar with right now. Well, but also uh, like Pokemon Go, though. Pokemon was, Go yeah. is another example. It didn't really... In, it's not augmented reality in that it involves a headset, but it was augmented reality in that it involves you going to real places and using your phone's camera. It would then show you... Pokemon hanging out in those right. real places. Sure. And you'd capture them. Sure. So, yes, yeah, so those are both examples. Um, and both those so what's ex- yeah? So what's the what's the issue? Well, both those examples seem fairly harmless. Yeah, they seem seem totally harmless. Well, there's a popular saying that data is the new oil. Okay. And basically, what this means is. You know, back, you know, turn of the 19th to the 20th century, uh, the fuel that was powering the world was oil. Uh, And finding and obtaining it was the key to power and wealth. A lot of modern digital titans, with maybe Facebook being the most prominent example, though Google and Amazon uh, certainly are very much in the same vein as well. Apple and Microsoft a little less so, but especially Facebook, Google, and Amazon, they are, they are extractive companies, but in the sense that they extract data. Mm. Specifically, they extract data from their customers, the users of their products. Okay, and how does this relate to, um, to augmented reality? Well, extractive, Companies whose bottom line depends on extracting data are hungry for data. Much like an oil company must always be looking for new oil to exploit and extract. It's why they spend literally billions on finding new sources of oil. Um, Companies whose bottom line depends on always finding new data always need new sources of data. Yeah. And for a long time, these companies were able to get new sources of data by just getting new users. Like, oh, Facebook signs up, more more people get on Facebook around the world. Same, uh-huh. same with more people are using Google, more people have Amazon Prime, etc. Um, eventually, though, well, Facebook's already running into this problem. There's over 2 billion people on Facebook now. Right. There's only 7 billion people on this planet. You eventually run out of new people to get on Facebook. Sure. And then, and, and after a certain amount of time, Facebook has learned almost everything there is to learn about a particular user. Because, I mean, if you've been using Facebook a decade, they have a pretty insanely detailed, complete portrait of who you are. Okay. So there's a point at which there's diminishing returns. But they've learned about all they need to know about you. There's no new data on you they can sell to an advertiser. And there's no new customers either. So the question for them becomes, where do I get new data? 
And this is where augmented reality comes in. Because many of these headsets that you wear, like the Oculus Rift and whatnot, for these headsets to function, they have to be gathering immense amounts of data because they have to integrate you, the world around you, and what they're showing to you into a coherent whole. And this allows for many opportunities. Like, for instance, say you were trying to make an augmented reality horror game. Well, you might be able to make said horror game a lot more effective if said headset is actually tracking your eye movements, actually, and detecting your emotional state. Or, or hell, even just as current examples of augmented virtual reality is that oftentimes the camera of what the game is showing you is controlled by where your eyes are looking. Uh-huh. That there's a camera watching your eyes, it sees where your eyes are looking, and then it updates what it's showing you based on that. Mm-hmm. So basically the thing is, is where is a big, huge new source of data to mine and sell? Physiological data about you and your human body and your physical reactions as you are playing these games. And mm-hmm. they can sell this data on you. And there are currently not a lot of laws in place really governing what is acceptable or not to gather or sell in these situations. I mean, what if the, if the headset can gather detailed physiological data about you, it, it, might, it might know very sensitive things about you before you do. Mm-hmm. Like, it might be able to figure out maybe your sexual orientation, and you've been keeping that secret because of a difficult mm. family situation or something. Um, or based on, based on based how on, you're using ba- the... Based on how you're using it, because deep machine learning algorithms... So say there was like, say like there was a character in the AR game... Uh, that was the same sex as you, and, and, and your reaction, your reaction was, as, yes. was arousal yes, or attraction. It, exactly. Um, that's then that would example. give away that you are you know, homosexual. Exactly. And out, it would essentially out you. You would be outing the person to data advertisers. Well, well, like, And once again, but, you know, somebody might be like, well, isn't that a little sci-fi to say they could know that about you? Well, you'd be surprised because there have been already, no, once again, no sci-fi needed, there have been some famous incidents where these machine learning algorithms, uh, upon scanning data about consumers, have having learned very sensitive things about consumers before the person themselves knew. Like there was a famous incident where um, a woman who, as far as she knew, was not pregnant, started receiving a bunch of advertisements that would have been targeted towards a pregnant woman. <laughs> it turned out she was pregnant. Yeah. And the algorithm had somehow known before she knew because she just apparently, enough of the data points she was measuring on her, it went, well, these all match women who are pregnant. She's pregnant. Wow, yeah. And this is just off of Facebook data that that actually happened. So you're saying... If they're collecting richer data, they're collecting and much more intimate data mm-hmm. from faces and and reactions to projected images and so on. Mm-hmm. Then the 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 intimacy of detail that they can have on an individual could be extremely problematic. Exactly, without proper legal protections in place. Yes, okay. I'm not proposing banning VR AR, like you know that's. But it's still it's still a data problem. But it's just that VR or or AR, I guess in this case, is is adding 
a new layer of depth it to is, the already difficult data problem. It is. It allows them access to data they previously did not have easy access to. Yeah. And now they have it. Uh huh. And the question is, what will they do with it without proper laws and protections in place? Very interesting. Okay. Uh, well, we're trying to end on a little bit of a positive note here. All right. Well, that's always good. <laughs> uh, what? So it's the opposite question. What I just asked. What uh, technology gives you some hope? Hmm. Well, I mean, believe it or not, despite the last year and the loss of net neutrality for now, and a lot of things that we are facing, echo chambers and whatnot, I still actually remain pretty hopeful about the Internet as a technology. Really? Yes. Um, how, I mean, how would that work? You know, the Internet was a new technology when it was created, and it was created under a set of best guesses and assumptions. You know, uh -huh. nobody had ever built such a thing before. Sure, yeah. And uh, frankly, they got an amazing amount right for a first attempt. But essentially what I would argue that we're looking at is we're looking at, okay, we created something. We had a hypothesis, almost like being scientists. We were like, I think that if I design this thing this way, this is what will happen. And we learned that in some ways we were right, but there is a number of things we were wrong about or we didn't anticipate. And what that to me says is not, oh, well, junk the internet. It's like, okay, what can we learn from these mistakes? Mm -hmm. How can we design a better internet? Yeah. Well, that's interesting because um, uh, I had a, the, the previous interview I did with Daniel Ressler, he talks about, at the end, we talked about Feedback systems, uh, to put it in terms of engineering, that every other engineering uh, discipline except for uh, software engineering has uh, enough feedback over, over several hundreds of years in, in some cases where they can say, oh, okay, well, we know how to do this basically perfectly. Let's say bridge making, right? Mm -hmm. Like, uh, you know. Uh, those kinds of engineers know how to make a bridge. Right. They know what's involved. They know how to do it. Because, it, but they, but it's only because enough people have died from building faulty bridges, you know, and got or gotten mm -hmm. hurt or whatever that they now know. Okay, well, we can't do that. And exactly. We can't do that. People often forget how young a discipline software engineering is. Actually, like mm -hmm. there are many places where there still is no best practice or ideal solution. It's really just software developers figuring it out as best they can. Yeah. Um, but yeah, absolutely, that it's a young discipline, and some mistakes were made. But like anything, you can learn from those mistakes. And I think a lot of the problems that we have seen with the Internet come from that, despite the dream of the Internet as a truly democratic space, some of the original design decisions, which we alluded to earlier, don't actually foster democracy. They're actually hierarchical in nature. Yeah. Um, because fundamentally, there's, there's two major ways you can design a computer network. Doing what's called client-server architecture, which is how most of the internet works, and what's called peer-to-peer -peer networking, which mm. is if you've ever had like a LAN party at your house, that's oh, a good okay. example of a peer-to-peer -peer network. Um, and 
Peer-to-peer is much more like a true web, you know, we call it the World Wide Web. Peer-to-peer is much more like that, where it's really just every single computer talking to every single other computer. Mm -hmm. In a peer-to-peer network, a true peer-to-peer network, it really, even if you have some bad actors, they can't ruin things for everyone else, because no one node is really more important to the network than any other node. You know, somebody wants to be like, data can only pass through my node under these conditions. No one cares. The data just goes around their node. The network just now starts acting like their node isn't even there. Mm -hmm. So trying to explore more true peer-to-peer hardware networks for the Internet is something that excites me as a way to fix some of the issues we're dealing with because no one actor could say oh, well, no net neutrality for you. In fact, Mm -hmm. and because basically everybody was trying to do that, consumers could just ignore them and go get their data from somebody else who will treat them fairly. Interesting. And So you think that 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 might be the subversive way, is is if there's some sort of peer-to-peer alternative to the Internet that could catch uh, attention, then, um, then suddenly net neutrality as... Defined by the FCC is no longer an issue, and 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 people. The, are... the network, the hard, the the hardware itself starts directly enforcing net neutrality. Interesting. Kevin, <laughs> it's been a great conversation. We've spent a lot of different topics, gone to some pretty good depth with all of them. I've enjoyed it a lot, as always. I uh, I'm very thankful you wanted to have me on, Tall, and I really. Uh, Really appreciate that you like to foster conversations like this. We uh, we definitely in our clickbaity times need more in-depth discussion. So I'd, I'd like to thank you for uh, doing this series. Thank you very much, Kevin. Uh, hope you'll come back uh, for another one sometime, uh, either this series or some other series I do. I'm always it's always happy good to, to talk chat. to you. Always happy to chat. Yes, likewise. Always good to talk to you. All right. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks for joining us on this trip through the Shadow of the Valley. If you'd like to learn more about the EFF, please visit EFF.org. And if you happen to live in or around Austin, Texas, be sure to check out the local branch at EFFAustin.org. Our theme music was generously provided by Bly, spelled B-I-E-L-E. You can find her on SoundCloud or at sarahbly.com that's sarah with an h b-l-y dot com additional music was provided by michael garfield host of future fossils podcast you can also find him on patreon and bandcamp at michaelgarfield.bandcamp.com this will do it for this episode if you like this podcast please subscribe and leave a review Share it with any friends or family you may think may enjoy him. I've been your host, Tal Leeds, saying, keep going. <laughs> <laughs>